Good morning, Greater. If you will please rise for the reading of the gospel. Today we'll be, be, we'll be reading from the New Testament in the Gospel of John, fourth chapter, beginning at the seventh verse. Again, that's John chapter four, beginning at the seventh verse. And it reads as follows. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Sharice. Let us go before God in prayer. God, we honor you today. We glorify you because you are God. We thank you for being our Savior through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for being our forgiver. We thank you for being our leader. And God, in these moments, we want to submit ourselves fully to you. God, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be open and receptive to what you desire to say to us. God, we know that if you don't speak, nothing can be said. And so we pray, God, that you would speak through me, Father. Let the words that come out of my mouth, God, speak to the hearts of your people, that they would want to leave and do what you called them to do, to be who you called them to be, to say what you called them to say, and live how you called them to live. God, we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that you would be glorified, that your people would be edified, and that the devil would be terrified as a result of what happens in this place on today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. There are two ways that you can live your life as a single person, significantly or insignificantly. When you look in Webster's Dictionary, the word significant means to have meaning. It means to have influence. It means to have effect. And when you look at the word single in the Webster's Dictionary, it says someone who's not married, someone who is separate, unique, a whole person having no equal. When you put those two together, you see that significantly single means to be a person who has meaning, influence, and effect while not being married, but being a separate, unique, whole person having no equal. Let me interpret that for you. What he's saying is that God has you single for a reason and for a season. 
that you are single, whether by divorce or whether by widow or whether you were never married before. God has you single for a reason. There's a purpose for which he has called you to the state of singleness, and he wants you to live out his purpose in that season. And I figure that if you're going to be single, you might as well be significantly single. I mean, if you're going to be single, you might as well do it right, right? So today, I'm going to begin this series entitled Significantly Single. This week, we're going to talk about uh, finding significance in your singleness. Next week, we're going to deal with the significance of a single parent. But over these next two weeks, we want you to embrace what God has to say to you about your state of singleness. Now, at this point, I want to begin uh, this, today's message with a quote from a book entitled Common Mistakes Singles Make by Mary Welchel. It's a book that we'll have available for you to purchase on next week uh, if you'd like to come and get a copy of that. And it says this, single people frequently view their single status as one big waiting room, waiting for Mr. or Ms. Wright to come along and rescue them from a fate of more horrible than death, being single. There's a very common tendency to think that life hasn't really begun for us yet. We're just marking time, flying around in a holding pattern, waiting for this prerequisite marriage before we can truly start. Even though many singles protest that they aren't doing this, they are. There are reasons for this common attitude. Our society is built for twos. Although statistics tell us there are more single adults than married adults, everything around us is designed for couples. Try taking a vacation, one to a room. Everything is priced and promoted as double occupancy. Go into a really nice restaurant and eat by yourself. There are no tables for one. Heads turn to watch you follow the maitre d', usually to the back of the room, as though the single diner is a rare creature, and the waiter probably hates having you at his table because the tip will be smaller. Mary Welchel is trying to express the sentiments of many singles in our society. She's saying that we have ladies in our society who are sitting in the waiting room of life, waiting for a man to call them by a different last name. We have men in our society who are stuck in that holding pattern, trying to decide whether or not they're going to land in the state called commitment. We have singles that are being told by our society that significance cannot be found in the state of singleness, but only in the, on the mountain of marriage. Society is telling our singles that you can't find significance in your singleness. But I want you to know that today as we study this single man who met this single woman at this single well, you're going to recognize that you can find significance in your singleness. Look at your neighbor and say, I can find significance even in singleness. I'm going to say it again. Say, I can find significance even in singleness. In order to find significance in singleness, you must first understand or remember that a significant other cannot provide significance. You must remember that a significant other cannot provide significance. The reason I say remember is because many, if not all of us, have at some point in our lives pursued a relationship looking for significance. Am I right about it? I mean, you went into that relationship saying, if I could just be with somebody and have a relationship, I would feel better about myself. But the truth is, you still had low self-esteem. You told yourself, if I could just be in a relationship, people would respect me and treat me better. But in the relationship, you still felt disrespected. You told yourself that if I could be in a relationship, life would be altogether better. But you still found life being miserable 
and mediocre. You cannot find significance through a significant other. I've come to find out that a significant other can only be found once you yourself have found significance. I mean, the very phrase significant other communicates that you yourself have established your own personal significance so that the person with whom you hook up is a person other than yourself that has significance, making them a significant other. The relationship doesn't change the reality of your life. If you don't find your significance in singleness, how do you expect somebody else to? Young lady, if you don't see yourself as significant, how do you expect a man to treat you like you're significant? Young man, if you don't see yourself as significant, how do you expect a young lady to treat you as significant? If you don't believe me, let's look at the passage, verse 16. Keep your Bible open because we're going to be talking through it all day today. So just keep it open to John chapter 4, page 898, page 899. Just keep it open right there. Verses 16 through 18 says this. He told her, being Jesus, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied, which means that she was single. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. Somebody say five. Five. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This woman had five husbands. She had been married five times times, but she still lacked significance. She had enough rings to fill every finger on the left hand, but she still lacked significance. She had worn five different bridal gowns, but she still lacked significance. She had been on five different honeymoons, Cancun, Cozumel, uh, uh, St. Thomas, Hawaii, but she still lacked significance. She had lived in a large house five different times but still lacked significance. She had driven the nice car five different times, but she still lacked significance. You know why I know she lacked significance? Because she was in another relationship seeking for significance. That's what the Bible says. He says the man you're with now isn't even your husband. In a relationship looking for significance. She found out that every husband she had couldn't make her whole. She was looking for love in all the wrong places. And I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I want you to hear me and hear me well. You cannot find significance in a significant other. It won't be found there. You can only find significance in the Savior. You've been dating and breaking up, hooking up, breaking up, hooking up, breaking up, hooking up, and breaking up. And the relationship is not the solution. It's just the symptom to a bigger problem. It reminds me of a story of a little boy named James that I heard. He was a seven-year-old who was in the second grade. He was walking home from school one day with his friends, and they saw this construction site that had mounds of dirt where they could run and play and get dirty like little boys like to do. (laughs) And as he was playing on this construction site, running with his friends, playing hide-and-go-seek, he found himself feeling an excruciating pain in his foot from a rusty nail that had just pierced his flesh. In that moment, he began to cry and scream, and with courage and fear all at the same time, he started pulling the nail out of his shoe and out of his foot. And he knew that when he went home, things were going to be challenging because he didn't want to tell his father that he had hurt his foot because his dad told him not to go to the construction site. So he got home, and instead of having his father help him to deal with the wound, he just put a Band-Aid on it. So the first day goes by, and he's walking around, 
and the pain is painful. The second day, he continues to feel the pain, and so he decides to put on another sock just to cushion the blow of walking. After a week or so of doing this, he found the pain to be so significant that he was walking with a severe limp. And finally, his father said, son, why are you walking with a limp? What's wrong with you? What happened to you? And with tears in his eyes and fear in his heart, he looked at his dad and he said, dad, I know you told me not to go to that construction site. I was playing with my friends. I got a nail in my foot. I think it was rusty. And his father immediately began to take the shoe off. He began to take the socks off. He took off the nasty old band-aid. And he looked and saw that the wound had become severely infected. And so he rushed his son to the emergency room. And he had the doctors begin to work on him to give him the shot that he needed and give him the antibiotics that he needed and use the alcohol to clean the wound. And he looked at his son and he said, son, do you realize that your foot was so infected you almost lost your foot because you were ashamed of something that you had done? He said, son, I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. A Band-Aid doesn't heal a wound. It only covers the wound. And friend, I want you to know today that a relationship does not heal the wounds of your life. It simply covers up the wounds. The relationship does not heal the wound of father pain. It just covers it up. It doesn't heal the wound of falling self-esteem. It just covers it up. It doesn't heal the wound of fearful interactions and frequent insecurities. It just covers it up. You're just like little James. You're afraid to go to the father because you were plain and you got hurt. You didn't plan on getting hurt. You were just going to go out on a date with the brother. You didn't think he was going to try to take advantage of you. You weren't planning on getting hurt. You were just going to see if they might be interested in a relationship with you. You weren't planning to get hurt, but now you're at a place where you're afraid to come to the Father because you were playing and you got hurt. But God is looking at you today, and he's saying, just like that father of James, I'm there to take off the barriers that are hindering me from getting to the wound that's in your life, and I want to heal you. If you don't let Jesus work on the wound and you keep covering up with relationships, what will happen is the wound will get severely infected. And the problem with the infection is that ultimately you end up losing a part of yourself. I see people every day walking around with emotional amputated persons. Their ability to trust has been amputated because of an infection in their trust area of life. Their ability to believe in themselves has been amputated because of an infection from a bad relationship. Their ability to trust God to be the provider has been amputated because of a bad relationship. You've got to deal with the infection and let the Father come and take the Band-Aid off and heal your wound. Say it with me. Remember that a significant other does not provide significance. The next thing you need to understand in order to find significance in singleness, you need to request a sip from the Savior. You need to request a sip from the Savior. Look at verse 10 through 15 of chapter 4. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would have requested a sip from the Savior. He goes on to say in verse 11, the sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She didn't know who Jesus was. She said, where can you get this living water? What store can you get it at? H-E-B, Randall's, Albertson's? 
He said, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Jesus was letting her know that the water you've been drinking is not sufficient to satiate your thirst. And so you need to get a different type of water. He goes on and says, indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. At that moment, she reached out to Jesus and she requested a sip from the Savior. And she requested a sip because she was thirsty. She was thirsty for water, but more than that, she was thirsty for significance. Friend, what are you thirsting for? Are you thirsting for acceptance? Are you thirsting for assurance? Are you thirsting for uh, affection? What are you thirsting for? Are you thirsting for security? Are you thirsting for success? Are you thirsting for significance? What are you thirsting for? I ask the question because what we thirst for determines what we sip. I mean, when I'm really thirsty, I don't care what I drink. I drink water, I drink red Kool-Aid, I drink a Coca-Cola, I drink a lemonade. Whatever I can get my hands on, that's what I'll drink if I'm really thirsty. But I know that the only thing that can truly quench my thirst is water. What are you thirsting for? Friend, I want to know what have you been sipping Have you been sipping the long hours at work so that you don't have to come home and feel like you're all alone? So you become a workaholic to avoid the issues you need to deal with on the inside? Have you been sipping the lustful spirits that allow you to slip between the sheets because you believe that sex equals significance? Have you been sipping from leftover relationships because you're used to ordering that drink? A leftover relationship is one that you had and let it go, and then you went back to it. And like a dog goes to his vomit, you kept going back to it, kept going back to it. The truth is, you don't even have a relationship. You just have an arrangement. You call them, they call you, you do what you need to do, and y'all go your separate ways. That's not the sip that's going to satiate your thirst. Jesus, the Savior, will satiate your thirst. Jesus told her, the reason you're still thirsty is because you're drinking from a well that ultimately runs dry. And in order to understand what Jesus was talking about, you need to understand the distinction, the difference, the dichotomy between Jacob's well and Jesus' well. Jacob's well was a human well that had been created by a human being, great man Jacob, but it was a human well. And it was not a spring-fed well, which means that the water that came into that well only came from water that came from rain on a periodic basis or dew that would accumulate over the night. So there was no running water through the well, which means that the water was stiff, it was stagnant, it was stench, it was static. There was no movement. It wasn't fresh. Whereas Jesus' well is a spiritual well. It's a well that has flowing water running through it. It's moving all the time so that every time you go to get a drink, the water is fresh. It's a type of water that you'll never be thirsty with. Again, often in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is imaged by water. And so I believe that Jesus is telling this woman, if you surrender to me in salvation, then I will give you my spirit, which will then fill you and allow you to experience a life where you'll never be thirsty again. 
the difference between Jacob's well and Jesus' well. And it reminds me of uh, my experience when I go to a restaurant to eat. I like to order something to drink. Most of us get something to drink, right? You know, I don't get an alcoholic drink. I get something like lemonade, cold glass of lemonade. Y'all remember that commercial, Country Time Lemonade, where people sit on the porch and drink the lemonade in the heat of the sun? That's stuck in my head. So every time I'm thirsty and I'm at a restaurant, I decide to go and get some lemonade. Well, I went to this restaurant one day, and I ordered lemonade, and they brought me the glass of lemonade. And I drank it before we even began to order. I was just thirsty, y'all. You ever been there before? We were just thirsty. And then by the time we ordered our meal, I drank another lemonade. Then I was sitting there waiting for the meal to come out, and, and I drank another one. Like three lemonades in a matter of 20 minutes. You know, I was really thirsty. Just Sometimes whatever's in front of you, you just drink it. You're not being selective. You're not being specific. You just, I'm just going to drink it, you know. So I kept drinking the lemonade. And then the meal came out, and, you know, food was getting caught in my throat, so I had to drink some lemonade to swallow it down. So next thing I know, I've drunk four lemonades and later five lemonades. By the time the woman came to me at the end of the meal, said, would you like another? I said, oh, what the heck, right? Let me get another lemonade. So she gave me another lemonade, six lemonades. What I didn't know was that um, when they brought me my check, they were charging me for each lemonade. And so now when I go to the restaurant and I order a lemonade, I ask the question, are refills included with the meal? And that's what this woman was asking Jesus. She was saying, are refills included with this meal? If I decide to drink from your well, will I get thirsty again? And Jesus said that it was a spring that was going to well up out of her. She didn't want to have to pay for it because she had given services for payment before. And she knew that if she could find somebody who could give her the living water that wouldn't cause her to thirst again, she'd take him up on the offer. And so she requested a sip from the Savior. Singles, I want you to know that you don't have to be thirsty. The Bible says in Matthew 5 and 6, that they who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. It's a guarantee. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and 18, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He tells us in Galatians 5 and 16, so I say live by the Spirit so that you won't fulfill the lust or the desires or the thirst of the sinful nature. What Jesus is letting you know and what Paul is letting you know is that the more you sip, the less you slip. The more of Jesus you sip, the less you find yourself slipping into sin, the less you are tempted to fall into sin, the less you are tempted to be a sinful person. Have you noticed that when you're walking with God well, you don't even want to sin? I mean, you're like, shoot, why do I need to sin? I got the Savior. But in those moments when we pull away from him and he's not as close, we're not as close to him as we desire to be, those are the moments when sin looks real attractive. The more you sip, the less you slip. Tell your neighbor that. Say, the more you sip, the less you slip. So you're asking me, how do I request a sip from the Savior? The way that you request a sip from the Savior, first of all, you request a sip through prayer. The Bible says that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. If you want to do something right for God, ask him. Say, God, I want to be filled again. I'm feeling a little empty today. Can you fill me up again? And God will answer that prayer because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you want to request a sip, you can request it through praise. As you lift your hands in surrenderance to God and tell him how much you love him, tell him how much you appreciate him, tell him how good he is. In those moments, he will fill your soul with praise that will allow you to feel the fulfillment that you're searching for. You can... Request a sip through being in a community of believers. 
where as you conversate with them, God is using them to speak to you and you to speak to them. So ultimately, you're in a place where God is filling you through your friends. You can request a sip through prayer, through praise, through connecting with the community. And finally, you can request a sip through God's word. The Bible says that the word of God can wash us. He said we can be washed with the water of the word of God. So if you're ever thirsty, these are just four ways you can request a sip. But any other way you want to do it, God is available to get you your sip. You can get a sip, a swig, a swallow to satiate your thirsty soul. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Thirdly, in order to find significance in your singleness, you need to rely on the spirit to submit. You need to rely on the spirit to submit. Why do I say that? Because it's really hard to feel significant when you're sinning all the time. I mean, how many of us feel good about ourselves when we sin? I mean, you just, I, I don't know about you, but when I sin, I just hate it. I just feel horrible. I, I just feel like, God, I'm so sorry. God, why? Man, if I just had a, if I just had a. And so what God wants to do is he wants to give you the spirit that will help you to submit to the way that he's called you to live your life. Look at verse 19 of the passage. Told you we was going to stay in the Bible today. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. After Jesus told her all her business, she recognized he had a relationship with God. (laughs) Thou must be a prophet. Verse 20 says, so then she started asking him spiritual questions. She says, our father worshiped on this mountain, and the name of that mountain was Mount Gerizim. She said, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for, what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. He's searching for people like that. Verse 24 says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus was trying to get to this woman and help her to understand what it meant to walk with him. And as she connected with him, she started asking spiritual questions because she was thinking, if I choose to follow Jesus, I don't know if I can keep it up. I don't know if I can live the way that he wants me to live. I don't know if I can do what he wants me to do. So she started asking questions about where she should go to church. She said, you know, if I decide to drink this living water, should I go over to Mount Gerizim Baptist Church or should I head on over to Jerusalem Church of God in Christ? I, I don't know where to go to church. And she asked this question out of a desire to connect with Jesus. And she's trying to explain to Jesus that you don't know who I am. I mean, you told me some stuff, but I, you don't understand, Jesus. I, I got a history of hitting it. I don't know if you want me in your church. Jesus, I have a lineage of loving. I don't know if you want me in your church. Jesus, can I be real with you? My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, Jesus. I I don't know if you want me in your church. Second generation, y'all will get that when you get home. So she didn't want to be fake. She didn't want to be fronting. She didn't want to be a hypocrite. She said, you don't know who you asking to join your church. I have a history you just haven't heard. But Jesus let this woman know in the moment of mercy, he lets her know that walking with him is not about an address, it's about an attitude. 
Walking with him is not about an address, it's about an attitude. It's not about a place, it's about a purpose. He says, I'm looking for people that are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. People that are going to be real with me. God is not looking for religiously perfect people. He's looking for real people that rely upon his spirit to submit. Let me ask you this. If we could be sinless by ourselves, why would Jesus die? And if we could live for him by ourselves, why would he have left and sent the Holy Spirit? That's like having a spare tire in your trunk and not using it when you have a flat. You're just going to drive around on the rims and mess those up because you don't want to use the resource that he's given you. So I want to show you a few things that the Holy Spirit does for us to help us submit to Jesus. Jesus anticipated our inability to follow his plans, and so he sent the Holy Spirit to assist us in our submission. Look first at Romans chapter 8 and 26. The Holy Spirit prays for us. Look at the screen with me. The Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit, hallelujah, prays for us. Romans 8 and 26 says this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Anybody ever been there? You didn't know what to pray for? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. What he's saying is that if you don't have a Ph.D. in prayer, the Holy Spirit will teach you. And when you don't know how to put to voice what it is you're feeling on the inside, the Holy Spirit will speak on your behalf. When you don't know what to say and you just say, oh, Lord. You said, oh, Lord. When you're laying in your bed crying at night in the fetal position, the Holy Spirit can interpret your tears and communicate to the Father what you need. He prays for us. Not only that, but he teaches us and reminds us. John chapter 14 and 26 says this. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. When we don't understand the notes that the professor has given us in class, the Holy Spirit becomes our personal teaching assistant. Anybody been to college where you didn't understand what the teacher was saying and you couldn't get to the teacher and so you had a teaching assistant that would help you to understand the notes, to understand the material? The Holy Spirit is our personal teaching assistant. He's there to help you learn how to overcome the failure of that last test. He's there to prepare you for the next pop quiz. The Holy Spirit is your personal teaching assistant, but he's also your reminder. You know why? Because when we have spiritual amnesia, the Holy Spirit sends us a text message to remind us of what God said to us, of what God said about us, and what God wants to say through us. He sends us a little message to say, uh-uh, you know you're not supposed to be over here. You know he ain't no good. Come on. The Holy Spirit texts us. He tells us. He reminds us of what Jesus has said to us, about us, and through us. And also, the Holy Spirit tells us that we are loved. In Romans chapter 5 and 5, it says this. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured, everybody say poured, poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That image of pour means that God didn't just give you a little bit, but God poured out his love in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you ever doubt whether or not you are loved, all you got to do is look at the picture of the Spirit that God has given you. God has given you his Holy Spirit as a very valuable gift to let you know that you are loved. So that's what the Spirit does for us. Uh, how many of you all have ever been in a place where you were trying to lose some weight, trying to get in shape? I mean, you, January of 2004, 5, and 6, you said, I'm going to get in shape. I am. I'm going to get in shape. And you started doing push-ups, and you started doing sit-ups, and 
You started walking around the block, and about the third week of January, you just stopped. <laughs> oh, come on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You were like, you know, I, I had good intentions, but, dog, I'm tired. I'm sore. What happens is <clears throat> if you're smart about it, you'll go to a gym. A gym like 24-hour fitness goals gym. I'm not endorsing those. Those are just examples. And when you go to the gym, what you find is that as soon as you join, they try to give you an opportunity to meet with at least a personal trainer for one time just to get you to see what it would be like to have somebody who has the intellect and the intuition and the ability to help you become the person in the Bowflex commercial. <laughs> and so they want you to see that they know how to use the tools in the gym to give you the body that you want. They know how to develop a plan for you to help you get the healthy body that you desire. They know how to develop a diet so that instead of gaining weight, you begin to lose weight. Instead of gaining fat, you gain lean muscle. They know how to put together the discipline over habitual training every day to help you become the type of person that you want to be. And God wants you to know today that he, the Holy Spirit is your personal trainer. He sent him here to teach you how to use the tools that he's given us, the tools of the Bible, the tools of the community, the tools of the church, so you can get the Bowflex spiritual body that you're looking for. He teaches us how to have a plan to grow in our relationship with God, so we're not just haphazardly trying to grow, but we have a plan, a system for how to go about doing it. He gives us a diet so we know what to put in our spirits and what not to put in our spirits, what to look at and what not to look at, what to listen to and what not to listen to. If you have purpose on the inside, side of you. You just can't listen to everybody. And so the Holy Spirit gives you a diet as to what to listen to so you're not walking around with a bunch of extra weight that slows you down from God's purpose. And then he gives you the discipline so that when you feel like giving up, the Holy Spirit is pushing you. He said, come on, you can do one more rep. Come on, you can run one more mile. Come on, you can go through one more challenge. You can make it because I'm pushing you. The Holy Spirit is your personal trainer. And you might be here today and you're afraid to walk down this aisle today to give your life to Christ because you don't know if you can follow the rules. I'm here today to tell you that you can find the significance you're looking for in your singleness by relying upon the Holy Spirit to submit. None of us can do it by ourselves. The only reason we can follow Jesus is because of the gift of his spirit. The fourth thing you need to do in order to find significance and singleness is you need to realize that surrendering is the most significant step you can make. Everybody say surrender. Everybody say surrender. Say it one more time. Say surrender. Look at verse 28 of the passage. It says, then leaving her water jar, the woman came back to town and said to the people, then leaving her water jar, the woman came back to town and said, to the people. After recognizing who Jesus was, this single woman found significance in surrendering. This is demonstrated in the significant act of leaving her jar. This jar represented her finding significance in a significant other, and she laid it down before Jesus. This jar represented her seeking a well that would ultimately run dry and she laid it down before Jesus. This jar represented her old life that she was putting behind her because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. She took her jar that possessed and, and, and represented all that she had in her life. She laid down her decisions. She laid down her dreams. She laid down her desires before Jesus in this jar. That's what it symbolized. Friend, what jar do you need to lay down? In order to fully surrender to Jesus, 
Do you need to lay down an unhealthy relationship? Do you need to lay down a friendship that isn't helpful? You know some friendships just aren't helpful. I mean, they just, you'd be better off without them. Do you need to lay down uh, a, a mentality that isn't heavenly? You're thinking like the world thinks and think, instead of thinking like God thinks. Do you need to lay down a lifestyle that is unholy? What do you need to lay down in order to surrender to God? Do you know that you can be saved and not fully surrendered? You can say, I want Jesus as Savior and Lord. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, accept him as Savior, and still not be fully surrendered. That's what happened to the man in Luke chapter 18. This rich man came to Jesus, and he said, I want to know what I need to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus looked at the man, and he said, all you need to do is follow the law. He said, well, I've done that since I was a kid. And Jesus said, well, this is what I want you to do. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The Bible says that the man walked away sad because he didn't want to fully surrender to God. When you surrender to God, what you're saying is, God, I'm tired of living my life this way. I want what you want for my life because you're God and I'm not. You're smarter than me. You're smart enough to recognize that you don't know the future. You're smart enough to recognize that you don't know what's best for your life. You are like a child who needs a parent. You don't know what's best for your life. The Bible says in Proverbs 19 and 21, many are the plans of a man, but the purpose of God will prevail. So if you want your plans to prevail, you need your plans to be in God's purpose. He says in Jeremiah 29 and 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God says, I've got something in store for you. I know what it is, and I know how to get you there, but I'm not going to force you to go there. I need you to surrender. When we surrender, we are laying down our desires. We're laying down our dreams. We're laying down our decisions and saying, God, I trust you with that. I trust you with that. Look what happened to this woman when she began to surrender to God. Look at verse 29. When she surrendered to God, she began to share. She began to share. Verse 29 says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Girl, could this be the Christ? She began to share because she had surrendered. When we surrender to God, we're able to share our story more easily, more freely. The reason she was happy to share is because for the first time in her life, she had something significant to share. All the news about her had been bad news, but for the first time, she had something she could put on the front page and actually want somebody else to read. When we surrender to God, it's much easier for us to share our story because as we share our story, we recognize that our situation isn't as bad as we thought it was. And when we share our story, people tend to share their story. And oftentimes you find out that you, what you've been through wasn't nothing compared to what somebody else has been through. The Bible says in Revelation, when we come down to the end, it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Singles, the way that you can find significance in your singleness is through sharing your story and letting somebody else share their story with you. Because in those moments, you gain the solidarity you need to be a significant single. You don't feel by yourself. You don't feel all alone. You have other people that are walking through singleness with you. The second thing that happened to her when she surrendered was she began to serve. Look at verse 40 and 41. It says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. I just believe that this woman became a part of Jesus' ministry team for two days as he did this crusade in Samaria. Jesus stayed there for two days, and she was the head of the marketing department using the marketing scheme called the word of mouth. 
She was going around telling people, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. She had a role using her big mouth that God had given her, and she was using it in a positive way. God, as you surrender to him, will take the gifts that he has given you, and he will allow those gifts to be used to help other people come into a loving relationship with him. When you surrender, you find more joy in serving. You don't serve with frustration and anguish. You serve with joy in your soul because you're thankful for the Savior who saved you. Finally, she became significant. Look at verse 42. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. In that moment, her life had meaning. Her life had influence. Her life had effect. She was not married. She was separate. She was unique. She was like no other. Nobody could do what she did in Samaria that day except her. And she maximized the moments that she had in her singleness to make a difference for the Savior. And singles, that's what God is calling you to do. Instead of complaining about being single, he's calling you to seize the single season. Seize that moment and take advantage of the gifts that God has given you to serve. And you will find yourself feeling and knowing that you are significant. Well, I'm about ready to close now. I have a friend who is a fashion designer. She has a master's degree in fashion design. And I was thinking about one day when I make a little more money getting some clothes tailor-made. And so I asked her, what's the process of tailor-making an item of clothing? You know, just tell me, since you got a master's degree and all, tell me what's the process. And so she said that we start with a picture of what we want to see. So I began drawing out a sketch of what the dress would look like or what the suit would look like or what the shirt would look like, just so I can have a vision of what this item of clothing should look like. And then I call the person in that's going to be wearing the outfit, and I do their measurements. I measure their shoulders. I measure their bust. I measure their waist, the length of their pants, legs. I measure the length of their arms just so they can fit exactly who they are. That's the difference between tailor-made clothes and store-bought clothes. Store-bought clothes fit the way they're made. Tailor-made clothes fit the way you're made. And so she went on to tell me about the process of uh, taking those measurements and beginning to develop a pattern so that she would have something to cut the material according to. And so she makes the pattern, and then after the pattern, she buys the material. Now, the material has to be material that looks good on the person that you're buying it for. Not everybody looks good in red, you know what I'm saying? Not everybody looks good in yellow, orange, pink, blue. You know, you got to have your colors that look right on you. And then she goes on and says, and after we finish putting all of this together, we sew the, sim, the hem, hems up and we have all the seams sewn up and we finally have the item of clothing ready. And we put that item of clothing in a fashion show. And when we put it in a fashion show, it's on display for everybody to see. And ultimately, it becomes a trendsetter where everybody is able to look at this item of clothing and desire to get it. Well, friend, I want you to know that God is doing that in your life. He's trying to tailor make you by his design. God has a picture of what your life is going to look like. He has a picture of what he wants your life to be like. He told Jeremiah, before I formed you in my mother's womb, I knew you 
Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. So God already has a picture of what your life looks like, but he begins with measuring your character. He begins with measuring your patience. He continues with measuring your perseverance. He just wants to get your measurements so he can fit this item of clothing to your purpose. And he moves from the measurements to beginning to look at the pattern. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and 1, don't be conformed, uh, don't be, uh, conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll know what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So God has a pattern that he wants you to look like, and the pattern is called Jesus. God sent Jesus as a human picture so we could see what we're supposed to look like. And after he continues with the pattern, then he begins working on the material. He says, I've got to develop a little more material in them. I've got to give them some trials and some tribulations so that they have some material to share. I've got to give them some frustrations and some fake situations so that they have some material to work with. And then God begins to work out the process of making you the man that he wants you to be, of making you the woman that he wants you to be. He takes you to the final place after they've cut all of the items and they've got it ready. The last thing they have to do is they have to take it to the press. And the press is where God works out all of the wrinkles. God brings you to the ironing board of life. And he begins to put some heat on you. This woman at the well was having heat put on her to work out the wrinkles in her life. This woman at the well, the first relationship was just the sleeve being ironed. The second relationship was the front of the shirt being ironed. The third marriage was the back of the shirt being ironed. The fourth marriage was the front of the shirt being ironed. And over time, she was ready to receive from God. So God has to have you in a place where he can work out the wrinkles. So he's got to put some heat on you through some trials and some tribulations. God is trying to put